As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keene, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. How do you prepare for 2023? How do you wrap up this year? Um, let's bring in Catherine Rooney Vera to talk about that. She is the head of global macro research at Baltic, so she's one of those top-down people. Um, Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Coming into the studio in cold, dark, and wet New York. Yeah. Are you from Miami? <laughs> I'm from New Jersey, but I live in You live in Miami, which is I'd probably, probably rather be in Miami. <laughs> I'd rather be there as it's well. It's cold there too, but nothing compared. So what do you think about... Um, you know, this conundrum, uh, we're we're at a point where it doesn't seem like a recession really is even priced in yet. And that's pretty crazy, given that everyone expects a recession. Yeah, I think we're already beyond talking about recession and everyone's talking about recovery before recession has actually happened. And something Kaylee mentioned, it's all about inflation. Yes, it's about inflation. But for me, it's all about the labor market mm. because the labor market remains so strong. And five, six percent um, uh, increases in salaries are not commensurate with a two percent inflation target. So my view, and you and I have talked about this previously, uh, Kaylee, is that the Fed knows, in my view, that it has to get unemployment higher and that it's horrible to say, um, but uh, by salary- the way, we're going to talk with Claudia Sam a little bit later. She of the oh. Sam rule. Mm-hmm. The Sam rule is, and I, she that. thinks that's a mistake to to mm-hmm. to think to to argue that you know the Phillips curve um, is still alive and well, and you've got to push up unemployment in order to pull down inflation. Well, so. I'd like to hear her view on where the Nehru is mm. right now. Um, I, I think it's around four point nine percent. You know, we're at three point seven. So, so. For the natural level of unemployment, if it is in fact 4.9%, anything below that is in fact inflationary. So, where, do, where what's her view on wage price spiral? Um, you know, if we look at hang on, I'm writing these I'm writing these questions down. <laughs> Taking notes. If you notes. look at, at history, um, an unemployment move of of that amount um, has never not coincided with an economy already in yeah. recession. Um, so, I think that's important to note. The yield curve is pricing in recession. We know yeah. that. But there could be a normalization next year. And my thing is, you know, everyone's talking about how 2023, the Fed isn't going to cut. But if you look also at history, the past 14 monetary cycles, the last hike versus the first cut 
that timing is much shorter than you think. It's on average four months. Okay, so maybe historically that is true. But if you listen to the Federal Reserve and Chairman Powell now, they are saying we are not going to do that. We are talking higher for longer. We are not giving up until inflation is back to our target, which right now is 2%. So even if inflation is cooling, we are still far, far away from that. What gives you the conviction that the Fed is actually not going to tolerate the weakness in the labor market and in the broader economy as they say they will and and have to make that pivot? Well, I think it's going to have to come down to how far the labor market rolls over. So mm-hmm. I think unemployment goes to 4.9%. That's the Nehru, you know, right. it's hard to estimate. But Where I are we now, 3.7%? We're 37 in, in unemployment. So I do think the Fed needs to force the labor market to roll over because there's supply side forces and there's demand side. We all talk about both of them. The supply side forces are improving. You know, used car lots are packed now. <laughs> yes. I, and cars. I've seen prices come down considerably she uh, knows in the Gina used Miller market. She knows what you'll respond to. Massively. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you love cars. Um, so, so I do think supply side forces are improving. Um, you have China reopening, which you guys have been talking all morning about, especially you've been up so early. Um, uh, but demand side really hasn't taken that hit yet. And oh, the by the reason, way, rem- we also got a $1.7 trillion omnibus. Omnibus, which, yeah, which so I, that's another. was in my notes to talk about as yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have inf- inflationary impulses, mm. but that's going to aggravate the demand side, which hasn't yet rolled over. Consumption is still pretty good. Um, right. It's been very resilient. Uh, if you look at conference board, that's been very resilient, and that has a very strong correlation with the unemployment rate. So if unemployment right. moves higher, conference board consumer confidence drops, you get a, a rollover in consumption. Um, people are still spending, even though inflation is very high. It's because they have jobs. Well, and when people are still spending, and maybe they're doing it by leveraging up more so now, all that pandemic stimulus money and savings built up is, has evaporated essentially. But what does that mean for corporate earnings? Because in theory, if people are still out there spending, tolerating higher prices, you're going to be able to continue passing on your higher input costs. And in theory, that would mean margins hold up and profits hold up. Right. So you have nominal growth and inflation. So I, I do think that next inflation is going to come down. I do believe in a recession. I've, I've been out of consensus on that since virtually the beginning of this year, um, calling for recession as the next phase of the economic cycle. Stagflation to recession uh, was my outlook piece for 2022. Um, and I do think that 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 we could get earnings having to be revised lower, um, and nominal growth in my, in my view, yeah, it's positive. But real growth next year, I have at minus zero point four percent. So that's year over year. So mm. I have three quarters baked in of negative sequential uh, annualized growth in the U.S. I just want to make one point to the consumer um, because. Savings rates have fallen substantially. I mean, we, you know, during the pandemic shot up to, you know, record highs for American savings rates. And now we're, you know, over 12 percent. And now we're back down to about 2 percent on savings rates. But I was talking with Mike McKee about this and he pulled up bank balances. I've got the uh, index mm-hmm. in there. If the controller wants to bring that bank balances are still holding pretty high right now. They've started to roll over a little bit, but they're still pretty fat. So mm-hmm. the U.S. consumer mm-hmm. shouldn't be counted out quite yet. There you see. Yeah. Um, and you can find this on your Bloomberg terminal for those listening on radio. Yes, absolutely. Uh, sorry, uh, if you're listening on radio, let's just say they build up big time during the pandemic, and we show this, um, and they they have held there uh, pretty well. However, Kaylee points out, you know, credit card debt is starting to climb again. The consumer starting to leverage up. How do you take this all into account with? and put it into your investment strategy. What are you doing right now? Are you still defensive? And when do we find an inflection point when you really can turn around and start investing again? 
That's a, a, a good a good thought. Uh, I, I'm still defensive going into next year. I still like uh, energy, utilities, staples. I still I think you still have to remain defensive. But uh, once you do get that change in um, in the labor market, I think that's where the market drops a bit further. I think we could go lower in the S&P. Um, and then I think we start talking about uh, the Fed's guidance turning uh, a little more dovish. So I am in the camp where um, the labor market determines uh, how quickly the mm. Fed could uh, stop talking about higher for longer. And yes, the Fed's all in now, but the policy mistake has already been made. Right. All right, Catherine Renuvera of Baltic, thank you so much for joining us in studio. How are you getting back to Miami? What airline are you flying? Oh, gosh, thank God, not Southwest, <laughs> but I'm not 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 far better spirit. So, oh, man. For tall people like you and I, yes. that's very complicated. Yeah, it's <laughs> difficult, and I don't envy you that. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I want to bring in right now Claudia Som, founder of Som Consulting. She's a former Federal Reserve economist and uh, one of my favorites because, Claudia, I can see uh, you care about people in your work, which is something that doesn't always come through in economists' uh, research. You also went to Denison University, but I feel more <laughs> like you're an Oberlin person. So uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the uh, the recent column you wrote, Ban the Phillips Curve, and the idea, or uh, is it Ban the Phillips Curve? Yes. yes. The idea is that to get inflation down, the Fed has to push unemployment up, which I guess makes sense because otherwise, how else do they affect sticky services prices? Mm-hmm. How is that wrong? And, and what should the Fed be doing differently in order to, you know, in order not to destroy the lives of working Americans? Mm-hmm. So I think what a big lesson of 2022, which has been extremely disorientating, right? We've had 50 year low unemployment, we've had 40 year high inflation. It is time to put at least to scrutinize the rules of thumb, like the Phillips curve that have been used by macroeconomists for a long time to think about what's that trade-off. The low unemployment just means that people have less money to spend. Most Americans, it's their paycheck, right? And low unemployment means that people all the way up and like working up into the middle class, they have money. That is 
that's not a bad way to think maybe about the trade-off when it's all demand-driven, right? A lot of stimulus checks, a lot of money, big wage increases. But honestly, we have a pandemic. It is still affecting China, other parts of the world, and we have a war in Europe. So the you really shouldn't use the Phillips curve. It's a really nice rule of thumb. It'd be great if it worked and helped the Fed calibrate everything. But come on, like this is a lesson at this point. We are in uncharted territory, and thus we got to think we got to dig deeper in terms of what the Fed does. So how else? Because inflation also is, I mean. Uh, Ronald Reagan, I'm sure one of your favorite presidents, um, described it as like an armed robber or, you know, a boogeyman um, that really steals from especially uh, the working classes. And it's very high right now. And then if you look at the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, NARU, um, mm-hmm. that shows that when unemployment is below a certain level, it's going to be inflationary, right? We were talking with Catherine Rooney Vera earlier who said that unless you get up to 4.9%, these low levels of unemployment are inflationary. Do you disagree with that? The NARU is a made-up number. I mean, it's with a lot of judgment and data, but Running up until COVID started, the Federal Reserve, most of the macroeconomics community was like, this thing is broken in many ways. The Federal Reserve showed they have no idea what Nehru is, despite a lot of effort. Mm. It moved consistently downward after the Great Recession because unemployment kept going down and down and inflation did not spike. And we really don't know, given all the disruptions in the labor market, particularly the the massive drop in the labor force participation, it hasn't come back, that affects the unemployment rate. The things that we have looked to as signals, as a way to think about what what is this equilibrium, like what would normal and sustainable look like, it's really hard to know what that is at this point. Now you gotta do something, and I think this is where the Fed has to get back, leaning into the data. We have seen inflation coming down without wage growth really slowing. And so that tells you there is at least some relief that comes without the Fed pumping high interest rate increases, fast interest rate increases into the economy. It's time to be a little more patient and really look at the early stages of the data. It takes a Mm. long time to get to consumer price inflation. On the subject of consumer price inflation, or really just inflation generally, the Fed looking obviously the PCE deflator, and the idea of made-up numbers, or at least arbitrary numbers, 2%. It's what the Fed set its target at. Granted, it went moved to average inflation targeting, but still, that's what they're striving for, something like that 2% number. Is that no longer a number fitting of the new world in which we live in, post-pandemic, post or still ongoing war in Ukraine, if we're looking at structurally lower labor force participation, structurally higher energy costs, should they be rethinking 2%? It's far too early to have that discussion. And I think, honestly, it it muddies the water and the, it makes the Fed fight even harder to get 2%. They are extremely concerned about their quote-unquote credibility I mean, I'm not sure who right now still questions the Fed is going to fight inflation, but I guess they're out there. And there is still a path as we come out of the pandemic, as the supply chains, as the rotation in the con- in the economy from goods back to services happens, we have a path back to 2%. It's far too early. That's a conversation for maybe this time next year or middle of the, the year after, but it's... 
I don't see any reason for the Fed to be moving that 2% target. If we get back to something that looks kind of sort of like normal on the other end of this, well, they couldn't even get 2% before Mm. uh, COVID showed up. Okay, fair enough. But it raises the question of, especially as you mentioned China, how it's still been shut off from the world. It led to a lot of supply chain issues that were very inflationary. Now it's opening back up rather Mm -hmm. rapidly. And the surge it's dealing with currently aside in the medium term, in theory, that's going to mean more demand for commodities could be a fueler of inflation. How do you filter that back into your thinking about the trajectory of inflation and how monetary policy has to respond to it? And that's not the only thing, right? We've got a 1.7 trillion dollar omnibus. You've got deglobalization, which has to lead to at least some inflation as well, or at least less disinflation. Mm -hmm. So absolutely what's happening in China and reopening is a wild card. And we know that the Fed has very limited tools to deal with commodity price inflation, Uh, the energy inflation. We still have a lot of food inflation, and that is not something that interest rates are going to chip away at. And, you know, what's happening in China is extremely um, disruptive, tragic as they're trying to reopen. And every time COVID came back, whether it's in the United States or big waves globally, it set us back in terms of getting back to normal, right? This has been very disruptive as things close down, open back up. So I totally agree on the commodity space that that could be a tough one. And that that was a lot of the problems the Fed had, a lot of the inflation um, concerns of the past year when we had the big spike in energy prices, particularly mm-hmm. gasoline, So, yeah, we are not out of this. There is a path back to something that looks like normal in the United States. On the globalization, I would be very careful about taking the last few years, which have been extraordinary with a pandemic and a war in Europe, to project big structural changes. That takes time. Fair, fair. And it's very difficult to do. Claudia, Mm -hmm. you know, for years now, income inequality has been on policymakers' radar, and you could argue that that's what drove uh, the big populist forces yeah. that we've seen mm-hmm. um, globally. Has the pandemic made income inequality worse or have we made any progress in pushing back against that? We During the pandemic, so in what we've seen so far, the fiscal policy, the labor market coming back strong, that made a big difference for you know the bottom 50%, middle class on down, Because for the first time in many decades, we have had a job full recovery. And that really makes a difference for the vast majority of people. Now, that, and and so you see in wealth inequality data that the increase in what you know families bottom 50% have in the bank it is an, it is enormous relative particularly to after the great recession so we have done some things to narrow that inequality now i mean the top is doing well right even with some correction right now in the stock prices and our our billionaires out there i mean they really got their recovery came fast as usual and yet this is I think it opens up some big questions. It's like, can our economy handle a job full recovery? And we need to have those. So there's a lot to figure out why this caused so much disruption. And yet we really did help people who haven't gotten a lot of help. Claudia, great having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Really love reading uh, your research and your uh, pieces. Claudia Som there of Som Consulting talking to us about maybe uh, the Fed should look at things a little bit differently than um, it typically has. 
perfect. I think uh, for Tesla, for big tech, for crypto, it has been an anus horribilis, as the uh, queen <laughs> would have put it. Well, you know what? I got that from Christina Hooper. She joins us now, chief global market strategist at Invesco. Um, and Christina, I guess you got that from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. Uh, but she wasn't talking about stocks and bonds. What does 2023 look like if we've had, you know, the, the pandemic leading into incredible inflation, then the war in Ukraine making it worse, the Fed hiking us uh, into maybe a recession. How does 2023 look any better? Well, I think that after several extraordinary years, and when by by extraordinary, I mean extraordinarily bad and traumatic, um, what we're getting to is a more normal environment um, where we're likely to see um, the Fed ease what has been a, a dramatic level of tightening. So I don't mean ease per se, but uh, certainly downshift its tightening and ultimately hit a pause button in the first half, probably the first quarter of 2023. Um, we're likely to see inflation continue to moderate significantly in 2023. So something of a return to normal. It's not going to be an easy transition, um, but I suspect that 2023 is going to be a lot more normal than the last three years. But the normal of at least the last decade or so, Christina, has been leadership by big tech and stocks being able to fly high because money was free. And with low borrowing costs, it's OK to have a higher multiple. That is not really the world we have lived in in 2022. And in theory, that's not going to change incredibly quickly. So just using a stock like Tesla as an example, how much more do you think those stocks need to deflate? How much more devaluation could be coming for certain pockets of the equity market? Well, clearly tech is under pressure. Um, the high valuation areas of the stock market are under significant pressure, and that doesn't change overnight. In fact, when we get to more of a risk-on environment, as global risk appetite grows, we're likely to see a movement towards um, lower valuation names, more cyclicals. Uh, I don't think this is going to be a time where we see tech rebound dramatically because rates are so much higher. Now, we will go through an adjustment period. Um, we've already started that process. <clears throat> we could see more of that in 2023. Uh, but again, it's going to be a more normal environment, which means we're unlikely to see outsized gains by tech. Um, we're really unlikely to see big gains by stocks in general in 2023. But I do hold out hope, and I, I believe strongly, that we're likely to see a positive uh, single-digit return environment, for example, the S&P 500. You know, Christina, yesterday we were talking with Matt Maley and Miller Tayback, and he pointed out we're looking at, I think, 17.3 times earnings, forward earnings on the S&P 500 now. Since World War II, in any recession, if we do get a recession, um, valuations have dropped to 15 before the bear market ended and, and turned around. Do you expect that we could fall that far because that would put us, you know, at 3,500 or maybe even below before we can turn around and climb back up into the end of the year? Well, we have to keep in mind that this is a very compressed economic cycle. So things are moving a lot faster than they typically do. So I think we're going to see a number of different forces converge at the same time. So we will have that headwind of downward revisions to earnings. I mean, that's a given. We haven't seen that priced in yet. 
But having said that, um, we also have a market looking ahead to the potential for the Fed to cut rates by the end of the year. And certainly just hitting the pause button will take pressure off risk assets. Uh, so I think that we could actually see earnings downwardly revised at the same time. We could potentially see um, as the year progresses um, some movement towards multiple expansion. Okay, so that's all on the equity side, Christina. But we know that, or at least we have heard that there are now alternatives to equities. Those have Reasonable now emerged. Reason- Tara, right? Yes. Tara? Yes. Tara? Tara? I think Tara. I, Tara. I knew a, t- a Tara. I didn't ever, I wasn't ever sure about, but I'll say Tara. Okay. Yeah. So however you want to pronounce the acronym T-A-R-A rather than TINA, T-I-N-A, which was there was no alternative for equities. It seems that that world has now changed. How are you viewing bonds into the new year and how much you want to be allocated in that asset class rather than into equities? That's a great question. And of course, uh, fixed income had an annus horribilis in 2022 as well. Um, that's part and parcel of, of what we saw in terms of a dramatic um, uh, tightening cycle on the part of the Fed and, and other central banks. So where we find ourselves is today um, is looking out on a year in which we're unlikely to see much more in the way of rate hikes, certainly relative to what we saw in 2022. That gives some breathing room for fixed income. At the same time, we've seen yields go up significantly, um, making, as as you pointed out, um, many areas of fixed income quite attractive. Uh, I would focus on uh, investment-grade credit um, as we see this struggle between a risk-on and risk-off environment. Um, the the level of, of um, uh, the maturity wall is pretty low right now. Um, we don't see a lot of m- debt maturing in the next 18 or so months. Um, so this is a good environment. Companies are fundamentally more sound in general than they were in the last uh, significant recession we went through, the global financial crisis. So this is a very different environment. Um, now, as we transition through the year, as, as um, uh, we get through a downturn in the economy and look forward to an economic recovery, that might be a time to increase risk appetite and move towards high yield. Um, But certainly right now, investment grade credit looks very attractive. All right, Christina, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time this morning, especially during a holiday week. Christina Hooper there talking to us from Invesco out of Connecticut. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's go, though, and focus in on the airlines. Helene Becker joins us right now, Senior Research Analyst at Cowan. Helene, thanks so much for coming on Bloomberg again. We just talked to you last week, but since then, there have been thousands and thousands of cancellations. As as Madeline says, we're not uh, close to getting back on track here. How is it right now, especially for Southwest? Um, good morning. Yes, we are not close. Southwest is not close. Everybody else is pretty much within what I would call their normal course of doing business. Um, the cancellations are relatively low. Southwest accounted for more than 80% of all cancels yesterday. And um, for them, they're, um, they're just they're just behind the the curve here, and yeah. they probably won't get caught up until the weekend at the earliest. Well, and we have seen modeling from analysts over at City that talks about a 3 to 5% earnings hit for the fourth quarter. But I'm wondering what kind of signal this is on the longer term operational health of Southwest beyond just what is ongoing currently. If something like this could happen at this scale for this long, does that just mean they're ill-equipped to handle weather events like this? I mean, what went wrong here that could go wrong again? Yeah, they had a confluence of a lot of events. So you had the weather and it moved across country, hitting Denver and Chicago particularly hard. Um, United in, is is in both of those locations, didn't get hit quite as hard, but still impacted. Um, for Southwest, though, I think at Midway, there was a lack of de-icing fluid. Then they had an issue in San Diego with fog. They had ice in Dallas. So, so everywhere they were, they had weather. And the worst of it is there systems are just not equipped to handle it. Historically, Southwest underinvested in IT, in, in technology, and um, this is, has come back in the past to hurt them. They were investing um, aggressively this year. That was one of the catalysts, for we thought, for the shares. Later this year, as the new scheduling system for employees was coming up. But one of the issues um, we saw yesterday was a, a an aircraft with a bunch of flight attendants deadheading to a city. Um, but the crew working the plane was short a flight attendant. And according to the pilot on board, um, any one of those other flight attendants offered to work the flight, but they couldn't get through to scheduling to say, hey, we're here, we'll take Jeez. it. And so Southwest canceled the flight. They're doing what should be automated by hand. Um, mm. When you have 6,000 flights a day and and, and you probably shouldn't. You should probably have two-thirds of that. Um, it's not that they don't have enough people. It's that they don't know where their people are. So they have to reset the entire airline. So it's a broken system, essentially. Yeah, I, I mean, I think so, yeah. It, it doesn't make much sense because I understand that the weather is very bad in some places. My buddy Kareem just showed me a picture of his parents' house in Buffalo, and Buffalo, it's completely yeah. snowed under. On the other hand, Helene, you know, I'm 49 years old. It snowed most winters of my life. You know, this happens in the winter months and an airline exactly especially so. should be prepared for it. Has Southwest management learned any lessons? Will they invest? Will they, you know, stock up at Midway with some de-icing fluid? 
Yeah. So sometimes they get caught out, but you're, you're absolutely correct. And I think people have a right to be really angry and, um, and annoyed because to your point, this is 2022, almost 2023. They should have invested years ago in these systems and they just didn't. Um, well, and, do you change and- your opinion on the stock, Helene? Because you liked Southwest before this. Yeah, no, I don't think we do. Uh, I think that as a, the, the shares um, are, are reflecting the disaster that's befallen them, I, I think you'll see the impact. You mentioned the, the 3 to 5%. We think it will be in the hundreds of millions of dollars range. They're doing everything they can. For example, refunds, 100% of your cash back. They're offering to buy you tickets on other airlines if you can even find a seat. Um, so consumers should totally keep their receipts to submit them to the airline. And then I suspect in the first quarter, we'll see them heavily discount tickets to encourage people mm. to try them again. And um, and then this investment, I suspect they'll do everything they can to speed it up. And, and you're right. There was a fuel sh- shortage at one location, but we're seeing sporadic fuel shortages around the country and airlines are tankering fuel where they where they need to. Um, but but I think the other part of what Southwest needs to do in the short term is cut back their ambition, huh. because even though they've hired enough people um, not everybody is fully trained, so the schoolhouse is full as mm. they work through this and and get back up to speed. Um, but I I just you know Kelly and Matt I just don't see how they get by with another storm like this without yeah. super investment in in systems to to improve things. Yeah, well, clearly something's got to give because there are a lot of people, including the Department of Transportation, who are not thrilled by this episode. Helene Becker of Cowan, thank you so much, as always, for providing us your insight. Absolutely. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.